Today from the Global Lane, a U.S. consulate in Jerusalem exclusively for Palestinians. What it may mean for Israel. It truly does undercut the current American uh, foreign policy. It would very likely topple the current Israeli government. I'm covering the truth about origins, the politics of Russian collusion, also COVID and the Wuhan lab. Fauci lied to Rand Paul about gain-of-function experiments. For that alone, he should go to jail. Meet JC, the computer-generated singer transforming gospel music. You have the ability to do way more things because it's not uh, under the confinements of a physical human being. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. Israeli leaders are standing firm. They disagree with U.S. plans to reopen a consulate in Jerusalem. Although Palestinian affairs were placed under the authority of the U.S. Embassy when it relocated to Jerusalem in 2018, the Biden administration wants to reopen a consulate in the city exclusively for Palestinians. Experts say that would effectively take a step toward redividing the city. Well, joining us with more is Jonathan Shanzer. He's senior vice president of research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And his new book is Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. Jonathan, I want to talk to you about your book. But first, the United States already has an embassy in Jerusalem. So why do you think President Biden and U.S. Secretary of State Blinken are pushing this idea of reopening a consulate there? Well, it's it certainly, I think, a move to placate the Palestinians, specifically the Palestinian Authority, which looked very weak after the most recent Gaza conflict in May. They were effectively just uh, a footnote in, in that larger story. So there's been an effort underway to try to put a little bit more wind in the sails of Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority president, to give the PA a bit more legitimacy. But the problem here is that it truly does undercut uh, the current American uh, foreign policy, which is recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital and treating Ramallah basically as the capital of the Palestinian uh, Authority. They probably should consider an alternative to what they are considering now, given that it would very likely topple the current Israeli government. Yes, I guess the Israeli government has said uh, it'd be okay to have one in Ramallah, but not in Jerusalem. So you've just released this book about the recent Gaza war between Israel and Hamas. What didn't U.S. officials in the media get right about it? Give us an example. Oh, there were just so many things. It was actually the reason why I wrote the book, whether it was the focus on a real estate dispute as the purported cause of the conflict, rather than Hamas looking to draw attention from its recent uh, failure to uh, engage in elections with the Palestinian people. That was probably the first one. There was terrible reporting about uh, the Israeli decision, or actually it was more of a ruse to not go in uh, with boots on the ground to fight that war. They had a lot of people blaming Israel for a misinformation campaign. I don't think that was the case. And then beyond that, there were certain strikes that took place, specifically the large tower that Israel destroyed that we later learned had uh, a Hamas office in it that was jamming Iron Dome, that very successful missile defense system that probably saved thousands of lives during the conflict. So really, one report after another was maddening. I, I watched the, the, the war take place in Hebrew. I watched it in uh, on Israeli television. And the reporting between what we saw here and what was reported there, 
it almost felt like they were covering two different conflicts. Well, I was just going to say, it seemed, seemed like two different wars the way it was covered. Now, a senior Hamas leader, his name is Ghazi Hamad, uh, says he won't rule out a new war. So how likely do you think another Gaza war is in the coming months? Well, as I note in the book, I mean, Hamas likes to keep the region on a low flame. There is, I think, always the possibility, especially because Hamas is able to stockpile those very cheap rockets very quickly. They have their engineers that know how to do it. It's Iranian know-how. So they can easily replenish that arsenal. And so they can launch a war if they'd like. The question is really, how much will the Gaza people put up with it? And how much will the Israelis put up with it? I think the likelihood is we'll probably have to wait another several months to several years before the next conflict. I think that is a good thing. But Hamas can always hasten that if it chooses to, or perhaps more importantly, if Iran pushes them to. Stockpiling, stockpiling, stockpiling missiles as time goes on. Beyond rockets and missiles is a political and economic war against Israel. You've spent a lot of time, I know, researching the anti-Israel boycott, divest, and sanctions movement, or BDS. You followed the money. So specifically, who's financing it and why? Sure. Well, th this was a, uh, a study that we conducted several years ago, and it's still very relevant today. What we were trying to figure out is how it was that the so-called boycott, divestment, and sanctions activists, how they all were doing effectively the same thing, whether they were building these uh, what they call apartheid walls on campus or posting eviction notices on the dorm room uh, doors of uh, Jewish students or pro-Israel students on campus, there seemed to be a commonality across a lot of these campuses. As we learned, there was one organization called American Muslims for Palestine, it's based out of Chicago, and uh, they were doing a lot of the coordination of these activities. And it turns out that a lot of the people that uh, work there had previously been involved in charities that were shut down by the US government for Hamas-related activities. Now, we cannot say at all that AMP is involved itself in Hamas-related activities, although it was really important for us to conduct this network analysis to figure out who's doing it, what's motivating them, and perhaps just a glimpse of where some of the money comes from. And Jonathan, it seems to be growing. How much of a threat does BDS pose to the Jewish state? Well, I would say that thankfully so far it has a very minimal impact. The uh, Israel's known as the startup nation. It has a remarkable high tech sector. If they succeed over the course of five or 10 years, we could see a negative impact. But thankfully, I think Israel is on top of it. And on top of that, I would say Israel is developing technology that the world needs. And that is protecting it from BDS probably more than any other measure could. Okay, Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President of Research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and author of the new book, Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. Thank you, Jonathan, for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Throughout his presidency, Donald Trump described the investigation into his campaign's alleged ties to Russia as a hoax. I call it the rigged witch hunt. And now, recent developments in special prosecutor John Durham's investigation suggest Trump was right. The arrest of this man, Russian Igor Donchenko, a subsource for the Steele dossier, suggests a possible DNC and Clinton campaign connection to Russia. So what does all this mean moving forward? Well, joining us is Peter Navarro, former assistant to President Donald Trump. Mr. Navarro is author of the new book, In Trump Time, a journal of America's plague year. 
Peter, it's a pleasure, sir. And I want to talk to you about your memoir in a moment. But first, we're not seeing much reporting about this recent Durham revelation, but the arrest is extremely significant. What do you make of it? What do you expect may happen next? Uh, when when the hoax took out Mike, Mike Flynn, he was the first uh, national security advisor. That he directs the National Security Council. That set in motion uh, the hiring prematurely uh, of H.R. Uh, McMaster. Uh, McMaster was just a really bad fit for the Trump White House. Uh, we are economic nationalist populists, uh, President Trump, uh, America first. McMaster was a, uh, um, a full-out globalist. But the other thing, Gary, and again, this is a subtle point I did talk about in Trump time. When, when a national security advisor comes in with a new administration, um, that, that NSC is staffed by detailees from the various agencies, right? And he always sends those people back and brings in people who are supportive of the incoming administration. Because of the Russia hoax, which Bull Durham is investigating, because of that, McMaster, Flynn's get fired, McMaster comes in, he doesn't clean house, and we wind up down the road with yet another uh, hoax, which was the impeachment hoax with people like Fiona Hill, who's part of that Russia hoax, and uh, and that uh, that uh, Colonel Vindman. Um, Do you think yeah, any former yeah. DOJ officials, anyone else higher up in the food chain, so to speak, may be indicted? Your thoughts, Brennan, Rubenstein, Page, Comey, Strzok, um, all of these people, um, Clapper. Um, they knew what was going on at, at one point. Um, they didn't disclose, and more importantly, a lot of them went out on TV and flat out lied to the American people. There's great FBI agents uh, that put their life on the line, and they, they deserve better than um, Brennan Clapper, Page, Comey, Strzok, and all these, these people. And I know in your book you write the Dr. Anthony Fauci, quote, did more damage to this nation, President Trump, and the world than anyone else this side of the bat lady of Wuhan. That's a quote. Many Americans seem to have lost confidence in Fauci. So do you think he should resign? And if so, why? Well, I think he should be fired and he should go to jail. Let me tell you why. I've got behind me the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This thing moonlights as a bioweapons lab run by the People's Liberation Army. He knew that the virus came from Wuhan. He knew that it surfaced within yards of this building here. Therefore, he had a good suspicion that the virus came from the lab. What he didn't tell us is that he, his agency had also, I call this the Fauci wing here, his agency had also used your taxpayer dollars to fund these dangerous gain-of-function experiments that can turn a harmless bat virus into a human killer. Fauci had been advised by a, a prominent scientist um, at Scripps that this virus that has killed over half a million Americans was likely genetically engineered and therefore a bioweapon. So that, I, you know, he, Fauci lied to Rand Paul about gain-of-function experiments. For that alone, he should go to jail. Lying to Congress is a jailable offense. But Gary, the bigger lie of omission was not coming clean about Fauci's role in the research that took place that likely led to the pandemic. If he had simply told us that at that point in time, 
we would have had a different strategy, completely different strategy that would have saved millions of lives worldwide. One of the key missions of the In Trump Time book is to get that guy behind bars, strip him of his wealth in civil suits from the people who lost their loved ones because of Fauci. Okay, I've got to ask you one more thing about the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill and current supply chain slowdowns. You were an economic advisor to President Trump, so how would he have handled both issues differently? And what do you think might happen with the economy in the months ahead, especially as people lose their jobs for refusing to take the COVID vaccine? Well, let, let's start with the, the bill that you referenced. I do wish people would stop calling it an infrastructure bill because it's not. It's about it's a, it's a faux infrastructure bill. It's only about 20 percent roads, bridges and the kinds of things we need. And just by the way, when when Biden's over here shutting down pipelines and, and, and wrecking our energy economy, uh, I, yeah, people would like a new lane on the freeway. But if they got to pay 10 bucks a gallon for gas, I, I think they might might uh, prefer something else uh, than what they're getting. Uh, in terms of the supply chain uh, crisis we're facing now, and it is a crisis, in the In Trump Time book, I describe how uh, our focus was singularly on buy American, hire American, bring the factories home, you bring the supply chains home, you have resilient supply chains. If you offshore our factories, the supply chains follow, and therefore you have fragile supply chains at best and broken supply chains at worst uh, during the kind of situation we're in. You know, everybody watching this knows that if President Trump were in office, we wouldn't be facing any of this economic crisis that we're facing, either the inflation, stagflation, or our broken supply chains. Well, we'll see what happens in 2022. Your book is In Trump Time. A Journal of America's Plague Year. Peter Navarro, thank you for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it. Gary, thanks so much for the time. The newest gospel artist is a computer program created using artificial intelligence. The digital artist is named JC, and the song is called Biblical Love. If you ever go to pieces, fall between the thunderclouds, I will put you back together. I won't let you down. Relevant Magazine reports some other countries experimented with digital artists for years. But this is the first gospel song believed to be written and recorded by an algorithm. Here to set us straight is the creator of JC, pastor, author, speaker, and CEO of Marquise Boone Enterprises, Marquise Boone. Marquise, what a pleasure to have you with us. So. How and why did you come up with this idea of JC, the AI gospel singer? Man, it's a great question. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, so first of all, this is something that I've kind of been fascinated about for the last two years. I was uh, introduced to a uh, virtual digital AI artist in the secular arena on pop. And I became very fascinated that this is where the world was going. Uh, Universal had signed her. I had started to research the company uh, in Silicon Valley that created her. Um, and then I started to see that this was something that we needed to really look at because in the Christian and in the gospel arena, a lot of times we're behind. And so I became fascinated just by the movement and what this world was going. And I wanted to be a pioneer and a forefront runner in this particular space. So that's really where 
the desire and the goal came is to always be ahead um, and exploring where we're going as a group of people. Well, tell us more. How did you get it to work? The lyrics, the music, the voice, all of it together. A lot of people have to understand that there are different types of AI. Uh, there are AIs that exclusively record and produce music off an algorithm. And these algorithms are created uh, through engineers and scientists, uh, computer scientists that feed uh, certain information and data into a system. And that system releases stuff on an algorithm. Now, what we've done as a company is we've merged two worlds because when you listen to uh, what we would call a 100% AI artist or 100% AI that is delivered through an algorithm, you'll see that it sounds very robotic and very uh, strange. And we didn't want that. So I would say about 45 to 50% of what you're hearing on Biblical Love is the blending and the mixing of our proprietary process of feeding data and information to the system uh, mixed with human vocals and human voices. So it's a blending of the two. Um, as far as biblical love goes, these this song is not created out of the algorithm. This song uh, is put, all the lyrics are put into the system um, because this song has been sung before. So all the lyrics are put into the system and the system sings it out based on the data that we've implemented into that system. So you may have a mixture of human voices probably coming up with the perfect voice that people will find easy Absolutely. listening. You've been in the music industry for a long time now. A lot of music fans, especially gospel and contemporary Christian fans, kind of like the human touch, an actual person who has a testimony, a family, someone you can get to know, a singer who has survived life's challenges. They love them, not only for their music, but also for who they are. So how do you overcome that with AI-generated artists? Absolutely. You know, we've been doing this for, for years. We've worked with artists and developed and, and broke new artists in gospel from Casey J, Tasha Cobbs, uh, Kelante Gavin, Brianna Babineau. Um, but when you think about a virtual artist, uh, there are a couple of things that, yes, people are going to have to adjust and adapt to. I think when you look at an artist and you look at the personality, there are a lot of challenges that comes with, with a physical person. Um, one, like you said, family dynamics. There, there may be issues with touring and issues at home, and then that spills over into the actual artist's career or the abilities for physical people to get into scandals or want to change labels or don't want to record a new album or want to retire. We enjoy personalities. We enjoy their music, but we start to really idolize them. We start to really believe that these people are almost like gods, and that's not the goal of God, is to have us to redirect them only back to him for worship, not to make it about us. And so, yes, people may want to know the testimony or the people's family. If you go and look on our on JC's Instagram, you'll see that we created a video um, that gives or tries to meet the needs of human connection, and that is giving them an understanding or sharing his story. Um, and so he talks about how he was created and how he came about and certain things that have been going on in his in his head or why certain people on the team were asking for certain things to be changed on him. So we are going to explore more and more with his story, with his testimony, with the dynamics. But we also have the ability to do way more things because it's not uh, under the confinements of a physical human being.
Okay, perhaps harbinger of things to come, Marquise Boone. <laughs> yes. CEO of Marquise Boone Enterprises. Thank you, Pastor Boone, for providing those insights. We appreciate it. Thank you. As you prepare this year's Thanksgiving dinner menu, you may pause for a moment and thank God that despite some expected food shortages at the grocery store, 